There was that reticence uh, because the IRA hadn't really disbanded. It hadn't gone away. Sinn Féin was still holding back from giving support to the police and recognising the court. So there was still this desire to see, you know, are they genuine if they want to be in democratic politics and they have to behave as democratic politicians. The IRA then agreed to facilitate to see where the talks went. Let's try this out. As we entered September 1997, the talks finally got underway. It looked as if the Unionist parties might leave altogether. Thankfully, the two loyalist parties decided to go into the talks and walked in side by side with David Trimble of the Ulster Unionist Party. The DUP walked out, but for the first time in any talks process, Sinn Féin was at the table with the two governments and all the parties that remained in, the talks finally got underway. If you have accepted the principle, what on earth is stopping you from starting now? Because we're ready to start now, are you? As we started that process in September, we had to deal with objections, mainly from unionists, about the independent chair, George Mitchell. Nobody was going to be satisfactory of who should chair the talks. So we had to go through a period where discussions went on so that we got everybody to agree to it. It was a bit of grandstanding, but it was kind of funny that here was a person who was recognised internationally, one of the leaders of Capitol Hill, who was doing us the privilege of coming to chair the talks, but we had to go through this nonsense to get him accepted. I'm certain that the governments uh, and the political parties will be discussing the best way to uh, reconvene and to proceed. We were trying to get something unique going. It was unusual because these people, to say it politely, didn't like each other. They never engaged with each other. It was tension all the way. In this episode, I'll be speaking to the nationalist parties that participated in the talks that led to the Good Friday Agreement. The violence had not achieved anything, if anything, it moved things backwards. Uh, when the ceasefires came, people were breathing a sigh of relief that at last some kind of positive steps might well follow. To my colleagues in government. There was a sense of optimism that for the first time to eject some dynamic enthusiasm into the process. And I'll hear from the DUP as to why they didn't participate in the talks. When Sinn Féin were being allowed in without having made any concession whatsoever, we came out at that stage. I'm Bertie Hearn, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement, as I remember it. Episode 2. Democracy Works. This agreement proves that democracy works. And in its wake tonight, we can say to the men of violence all across Northern Ireland, to those who disdain democracy, to those whose tools are bombs and bullets, your way is not the right way. You will never solve the problems of Northern Ireland by violence. You will only make them worse. It doesn't take courage to shoot a policeman in the back of the head or to murder an unarmed taxi driver. What takes courage is to compete in the arena of democracy as these men and women are here tonight where the tools are persuasion, fairness, and common sense. US Senator George Mitchell was the independent chair of the talks that were due to begin in the September of 1997. I asked him to explain why we need a Sinn Féin to be involved if we were ever going to make this work. What happened initially, of course, when we met in the talks, is that Sinn Féin had not agreed to the Mitchell principles. There was opposition on the part of the unionist parties to their position. There was widespread apprehension on the part of, I would say, most of the unionists that decommissioning would not ever occur. So they kept pushing on the decommissioning issue. 
Some of them said uh, under no circumstances would they sit in talks if Sinn Féin entered them. There was really very little progress. It was mostly just a disagreement and uh, insults and invective and allegations back and forth. It took us about three months to adopt a set of rules for the talks. What had happened was that when the British and Irish governments organized the talks, the two governments had prepared a set of documents which were intended to serve as the basis for the talks and the rules under which the talks would occur. Some of the parties objected to that. They felt that the political parties in Northern Ireland, there were 10 of them at that time in the talks, that they should be the ones to decide the rules. And ultimately that position prevailed. It was a long and complicated argument, but ultimately they did adopt rules, although that took several months to do so. Uh, the talks then got underway, and as I said, they were not productive. There was great tension in that first summer because of the conflicts over the marching season around the celebration of the Battle of the Boyne. There was a great deal of violence, a lot of burnt out cars, buildings, some people were injured, and some tensions were really quite high. And we continued into 1997, making very little progress. Then in late spring or early summer of that year, Sinn Féin finally entered the talks. And, and they went through the same process that everyone else had to go through. And I basically created a process by which the leaders of the party would enter the large meeting room in which all of the other delegates were present and would stand up and make a strong commitment to adherence to the Mitchell principles. And then they were required to go out outside the gates of the location where the talks were being conducted in Stormont and hold a press conference to say the same thing publicly. And Sinn Féin did that. So they entered the talks. And that triggered a very strong and hostile reaction from some of the unionist parties. Two of them, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party led by Dr. Paisley, which was then one of the two large unionist parties, and a smaller group, they walked out, uh, never to return. We That's the voice of Reverend Ian Paisley of the Democratic Unionist Party. The DUP, alongside the UK Unionist Party, did not take part in the Good Friday Agreement talks. Ian Paisley died in 2014. Peter Robinson had taken over as leader of the party and also served as First Minister in the Northern Ireland Assembly from 2008 until 2016. He managed them so well that he had them doing things that we were having to put them back. <laughs> That's how bad it was at the very beginning. I yeah. didn't talk to him. Okay. Okay. I, I could have sat up a bit more, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> a comfortable chair. I met with Peter Robinson at the Stormont Hotel in Belfast to understand why they left the multi-party talks. I tend to look back on the 91-92 talks um, as, you know, very, very useful because uh, I wasn't directly involved, but um, at least everyone was setting out their position. But I suppose... Peter, when we, we look at it, the, the, you know, with the ceasefires in '94 was that really where you felt that there was there was some progress that we could make after such a, a long period where it was very hard because of the violence to make any progress. Well, it certainly was a significant factor, but uh, I think there was still some scepticism within the unionist community as to whether it was uh, a genuine ceasefire or a tactic. Um, I, I think they, the longer it went on as a ceasefire, uh, the more we were able to, to hope that this was something that was going to be permanent. And certainly for uh, Ian at that time, uh, 
he was always very cautious that he was going to get caught out, that these people would go back to what they do best, uh, and that uh, he would find himself having uh, made some agreement or arrangement and be part of some agreement or arrangement, uh, and they would go back to, to violence once again. Mm. And I suppose 95 it probably showed, 96 showed a bit of that when we went back to Canary Wharf and the Manchester bombing and the the, the other issues. Um, where, where I come into it in in ninety seven, uh, I, I suppose the the issue was was it permanent? Was a second shot um, at at the ceasefire? Um, of course, we were all worrying that that might not be. But how did you feel then? For, how, how did the party feel from that summer of ninety seven when when the ceasefire came in? And I suppose the governments changed in the south and in and and in the UK. Well, again, there, there was that reticence uh, because the IRA hadn't really disbanded. It hadn't gone away. The uh, Sinn Féin was still holding back from giving support to the police and recognising the courts and all of those uh, issues. So there was, there was still this desire to see, you know, are they genuine if they want to be uh, in democratic politics and they have to behave as democratic politicians so it was still a, a, a period right even through uh, until you know the period when we were the largest party uh, in Northern Ireland uh, even then when we got involved with the IRA it was very much but even then we'd reached an agreement with um, Sinn Féin and at the very last moment we don't know why they they called it off the government had agreed, the two governments had agreed the basis of where we'd go forward. We'd agreed it was called a comprehensive agreement, I think, at the, at the time. And Sinn Féin had been working it through right up to that period, but at the last minute pulled out and said that they, they weren't proceeding with it. And then within days, the Northern Bank robbery uh, occurred. So again, you know, we, we considered it to be divine intervention at the, the end of it because if we had reached an agreement and then the bank robbery had uh, occurred, well, clearly the whole thing would have been up in the air. Mm. So there's always this suspicion that mm. uh, they they hadn't agreed to a lasting ceasefire. Mm. Uh, and I mean, we knew that there was always going to be difficulty with a large organisation to keep everybody uh, in line. But, uh, you know, while that suspicion continued, there was always a doubt in our mind and uh, we were looking from Sinn Féin to see some uh, indicator that mm. they were prepared to uh, make a concession that would allow unionists to, to feel that this was real. Mm. In, the, in the 97, when we started the, the other multi-party talks in, in September of, of 97 um, and, and through that winter, was was that your main concern? Was that your main concern that you know how can you sit in on that on that deal? And because if if you do get tied in, then the whole thing could unravel again. But well, we did sit in at the beginning. Yeah, at the start, the, yeah. the, the, the talks. But uh, when Sinn Fein were being allowed in without having made any uh, concession whatsoever. Uh, we came out at that stage and indeed it was a, the agreement between the three unionist leaders that they would all come out at that stage but David Trimble went back on the, the agreement and uh, it was only Bob McCartney and Ian Paisley took their teams out. Yeah, and in in that run in, in you know, the, those months into the Good Friday Agreement, you know, was the substance of the agreement something that you thought wasn't so bad, but it was the concern of 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 the the fact that there was no decommissioning, that there was no no commitment to decommissioning. Was that the main reason why 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 you didn't see that you could stay in? Well, clearly, when you're going into a referendum, you can't be say I'm against this piece and that piece and so forth. Uh, you have to be against the overall uh, agreement, uh, but. From our point of view, uh, we were obviously keen to have an agreement. Uh, we were keen to, to move Northern Ireland forward, but there were, I suppose, a number of aspects of that agreement which were totally unacceptable to us. Um, Sinn Féin would have had uh, ministries 
with no accountability whatsoever. They could take decisions and that was it. Indeed, that was proven when we went on. They were able to take decisions in spite of the fact that the Assembly voted against it, their committees voted against it, the executive voted against it uh, by a majority, but they were still, their decisions stood the way it was set up. Uh, they hadn't given their support to the, the police. Uh, they hadn't recognised our courts. Uh, the, the whole issue of uh, decommissioning had not been dealt with. Uh, and from a unionist point of view, the destruction of the police force was a big issue as well. The Democratic Unionist Party was out. But for the first time in any talks process, Sinn Féin was at the table. We were dealing with very devious people who had the capability, if they so wished, effectively to destroy uh, me as a Republican and, and effectively bring about a set of circumstances where I could lose my life as a result of my participation in these talks. The reality was that the whole peace process broke down some years earlier. Around the period of St. Patrick's Day of 1995, an issue arose that Sinn Féin would not be allowed to enter the talks until decommissioning happened. There were three clauses listed before they were to be accepted into talks. They became known as Washington Tree. Essentially, it meant that decommissioning would have to happen or at least start or commence before they could enter the talks. This, of course, was a new precondition which led to great difficulties and ultimately to the breakdown of the ceasefire in February of 1996, which had started back in '94, This was regrettable, unfortunate and put back the political process. I came into government in June of 1997 and the task for me on my election was to try and get the ceasefires that had broken down some years earlier uh, back on track, to get Sinn Féin to convince the IRA that it was worth making another effort to bring forward the talks. Well, Jerry, listen, I, I, I've enjoyed all the years uh, working with you for your opposite side of the table through endless Me negotiations too. at endless places. Um, and thanks for contributing to this and, and to get your take on uh, some of the issues of 25 years ago. And, oh, thank and you. And, uh, and thanks. I, I think it's a good idea what you're doing. So, Jerry Kelly has been one of the most prominent leaders of Sinn Féin in Belfast for many, many years who had served time in prison in the United Kingdom, was a hunger striker. He, along with Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams, were key negotiators. I sat down with Jerry Kelly to discuss how Sinn Féin came back into the talks and the role they played. In 94, I mean, there would have been the sense, having you know, discussed it at length with the base, that you know, it, it was, if the British government played it fair, you were going to play it fair, that... that you know, we, we were going to get a permanent ceasefire. I know we had the, I know we had all the debate about the word permanent, but right. it, leave the word out of it. Well, we, we, had, we had many, as you know, many discussions about words, you know, could, should, will, may, can. Mm. But, um, but that's right. I mean, what, what, um, what we moved into was uh, the, the British were saying that if the conflict um, and if you have to remember, there was there were tests in it as well. You know, at Christmas time and that there was uh, you know three and four day ceasefires once or twice, and and then uh, the, the British and, and John Major included um, were saying that all things were possible if if that was so. Uh, the IRA then agreed um, to have that to facilitate. I mean, their their position was they were a military organisation. Their their position was to allow the atmosphere or a better atmosphere um, to see where the talks went. I think, I, I suspect everybody, including Major, went into the talks tentatively, including ourselves. Let's try this out. Um, let's take it one thing at a time. Um, and and that's, to me, that's my memory of it. That's where it started off. We were we were meeting in different houses in Belfast and other places, uh, um, very regular, seeing where it went and then there was a group, obviously, on a Jerry. Jerry is, is, was always a, a collective leader, so he was bringing in more people, but obviously keeping it sort of quiet, um, more and more people to sort of get opinions. 
um, and and stepping outside himself and Martin and others were stepping outside um, the bubble, if you like, of republicanism and 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 getting other people's views. And as you know, Father Reid was 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 huge in 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 terms of that. So trying to get and looking for um, different views uh, that stepped outside it, who were looking in, uh, and. Obviously, I mean, to jump forward a wee bit, I think what, well, then what happened, of course, there was a, a cessation in uh, 94. And after, I think, 18 months, uh, it was very obvious, uh, certainly to the IRA, that um, this wasn't wasn't going anywhere. And and that, there was a big, you know, it was a big lesson in that because, you know, momentum is crucial. And what the British were doing, now they could argue that what they were doing was dependent on the unions at the time, that, you know, the, the, the Conservative government was quickly becoming a minority government. And um, they were they were strong off because to stay in power, as they said, that they needed the unions. So, I mean, looking back and in retrospect, that was probably their, their uh, notion, but they were putting up barriers and that was very obvious. And then... We had uh, tragically um, the IRA went back um, to conflict, and um, and then there was a bigger job to do in a way yeah. to try and convince people that you know there's still we still need to do this. And of course, when when uh, and I, I you probably correct me, I probably get my times wrong here, but certainly when when uh, Tony Blair came in, he, he had um, a huge majority. Yeah, and um, one of the things we used to talk about, th there was this notion that you know you would get a better movement out of Labour Party. There was another view that uh, looking at like France and Algeria and all of that, you know, that it, it wasn't necessarily the party; it was that they had to be strong enough, whichever party it was, to be yeah. able to make decisions. And I think that that was a huge. It's not to take credit away from from uh, Major and that. But uh, the circumstances then were changing. Albert Reynolds, I think, uh, because he was there for such a short time, but he came in without, if I could say this, you know, without any baggage, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, he, I think, approached it uh, more like, um, not in a necessarily political or with baggage way, but in sort of, this might be able to be done. And then, of course, yourself came in, uh, Tony Blair. Um, it was a bit like, I think, that the uh, there was a number of people, and it could only be accidental in a way, you know. I mean, obviously, you became T-shocked. Uh, you can speak for yourself here, but, I mean, my notion was always that yourself, Tony Blair, Jerry, and John Hume, in, in different ways, and obviously, he became connected and all of that there, um, had this idea which was, for, for the British Prime Minister, was certainly a different idea that, you know, there's a possibility here. Not necessarily that, that it would, but that there was a possibility that it was no longer just a security issue, something that you would talk about as containment, you know, defeat, all of that. That uh, there was a possibility. And, uh, and, and you know, it's been used a lot of times. I don't know if it was known at the time, but I mean, that, that, that maybe there was a historical moment here. And then with Bill Clinton coming in as well, and and also um, David Trimble, um, who just I, I I might be doing a bit out of service here, but you know a lot of it was to do with his, because he was an unexpected leader, and I think it was to do with Drum Cree and you know what he did at Drum Cree and all of that. So there was there was there was nearly in, in a certain way an alignment of people in whatever level was in their head, I certainly had the idea. And as you know, um, Jerry and Martin and that was in touch with yourself and you yeah. know, it was contacts. And those contacts became more and more important. Uh, they were always important, but I mean, the discussion yeah. became more, um, there was more life in it, if I could put it that way. And uh, and I think, I think hope uh, started to go there, but everybody still, you know, cautious and, and as, as maybe these things always do but I mean this was a bespoke uh, yeah. process and um, and the result of it was that you know. I, I suppose in um, uh, I started meeting Tony Blair I was leader of the opposition he was leader of the opposition so 95, 96 you know we, we, we started meeting with Mo Molan and you know lo looking at what was what was possible uh, and I suppose a big challenge for us was 
you know, when both of us came in that summer of 97 was to try and get the, you know, the ceasefire back on. And, mm. and, and thankfully the, the, the IRA um, moved very quickly that summer. Uh, in, in the 96 talks, I mean, Sinn Féin were excluded because of the, the fact that they, 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 um, the ceasefire had broken down. Um, and then when we came in, I mean, the big demand uh, of yourselves um, and the, the Sinn Féin leadership was that if there was another ceasefire, uh, our challenge was to get the talks, to get you into the talks process quick. Mm-hmm. And we went from that July to, to, the, to the September. Um, so I think we did achieve that. We got it in. That, that September, to, to move to that September 97, Jerry, that we, Sinn Féin now were in the talks for the first time because they weren't in the talks in 91, 92, and they weren't in the talks in 96. So this this was a bit of a shock to, to unionism and loyalists that they now had to... Uh, they, they now had to deal with you, 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 you good guys face to face. Um, we were slightly shocked ourselves. <laughs> but when we when we started that 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 run in in ninety seven, uh, what was the, the the sense that you know we could reach a deal then? You know, I I know I know. I mean, I had the endless Martin's meetings with Martin and Jerry, but you know, through the movement, did people believe it was it was possible to get a a, a deal? When you say the people, I, I, I think after um, 94, because the the fact that there was a ceasefire was, was huge in people's mentality. And if you remember the, the, the scenes on the streets and all yeah. of that there, and then obviously there was a, a depression. I mean, moving moving out of conflict, or at least the the idea that even moving out of conflict was, was possible because it had been going on for so long, I think... Um, opened up or empowered uh, people, I don't want to sound like a psychologist, but but certainly in, in, in a general sense, it, it empowered people and it empowered us, certainly, to be able to, because the atmosphere was there, to be able to sit down and talk about all aspects of it. I mean, we went down to negotiations, well, maybe certainly I did, went down to negotiations with the idea, you know, these, these Brits have, you know, 2,000 years of experience or whatever it might be and, you know, ruled as they claimed half or quarter of the world or whatever it was. And uh, you were sort of, you know, know, where's our experience from? And we did go on and get, uh, we got some from trade unionists, you know, um, individual trade unionists. And we also went to the South Africans and learned from them. They give us a lot of help. And what what we found fairly quickly in the uh, discussions was that the British didn't actually have a a master plan, that the plan had been for many, many years, a containment, inertia. They had no imagination in trying to go for it. And that's what had changed. That that is what had changed. Mm. And, and, you know, and as I say, the individuals uh, that we're talking about right across are, you know, John Hume to Jerry to Martin to yourself to, you know, uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Tony Blair. Um, I just think that that's what created the atmosphere. I mean, that part of it came from the top. But there was an openness, mm-hmm. a new openness to talk things out, I think. And it was it was uh, intense, you know. I mean, I was part of going out and talking to activists uh, throughout the country. We were talking about travelling earlier on. I mean, I did a lot of travelling then with others, going around and trying to explain. You couldn't tell every every single wee stroke and dot of it, but certainly the direction of travel and what was the possibilities, but it mightn't happen. You always had to have, you know, don't false promise, don't do any of that. And uh, I mean, it's a very political community. You have to remember that because it's been through so much, you know. So people people were up for logic. And of course, you'll always lose people. I mean, that's that's it. That's part of leadership as, as you move forward. But I think the the leadership of uh, Martin and Jerry in Republican history is is unique in the sense that uh, they were able to bring people along without going through that process, yeah. you know, um, which had happened many times in the past and in Republicanism and, all, and and that, you know. One of the things I do really remember, it's, it's always struck me because I was in the, the first team who were in talking to the civil servants. I think it was under Quentin Thomas. 
I remember the, the top civil servant wouldn't come, right? So it was the second guy. And we were sitting across the table and it was very obvious over time and time again that they were just stonewalling, that they weren't, you know, they weren't really going anywhere and all of that. When Tony Blair came in almost overnight, the same civil servants started to talk. It, it, that's, that's, what they, uh, that's, that's what struck me almost immediately. They then started to engage. And that was the same that we were in a different circumstance, mm -hmm. you know, for maybe very political reasons, but that's, that's why we were there, you know. The other nationalist party at the table was the SDLP, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, led by John Hume and Seamus Mallon. John Hume was undoubtedly one of the leading figures in the history of the island of Ireland. It was John who opened a dialogue which in vain in the late 1980s and who peacefully pursued the path to peace throughout the ceasefires and previous attempts at an agreement. In spite of what some people call legitimate targets, and in my opinion there are no such thing as that, uh, there are always innocent people in danger. And there is no doubt that the vast majority of our people want that to stop now forever. And I believe that that discussion and debate has gone on within the Republican movement as well, and I believe there's a strong movement there as well to stop it forever. From the time I entered the Dáil in the summer of 1977, I was lucky enough to meet with John Hume. He would come to the fifth floor Nenster House uh, and always made a point in talking to us. We got friendly together and when I became whip in 1982, John would always come to my office when he was arranging meetings to go to see either Charles Hawhey or John Wilson or other key people in the party at that time. I was lucky enough to become very friendly with John. Uh, later on, John would come to my constituency office. We regularly would go out together and talk through various issues of the process. He had a big influence on my thinking on Northern Ireland, and he was one of the architects for many, many decades of trying to find a peaceful way of making Northern Ireland work. I knew John and his wife, Pat, very well. Sadly, both have since passed away. I met with their son, John Hume Jr., and he recalled those early attempts to get Sinn Féin and the IRA to embrace an agreement. I remember vividly the, the day, and this preceded the, the Hume Adams talks, I remember the day he, um, he got a phone call um, from the IRA, and they said, meet at a certain point just over the border, the Bunkrana border, uh, at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And I remember ringing my mum, mum would, would have been in the office and he rang down and he said, look, I'm, I'm going away and sort of, you know, uh, and I think this was code word for, you know, because I, 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 everyone assumed, I think, that our phones were being bugged at the time, you know. But he was taken in the van, he was blindfolded, he was driven around the country for 24 hours. He was finally sort of put in a room and, you know, put in front of the, the army council who who then wanted the video of the meeting, and I think they sort of, uh, you know, he refused. So he was put back in a room and another 24 hours and then driven halfway around the country, um, you know, and then eventually was put out on the side of a road somewhere in West Donegal, you know. And my mother was beside herself with worry, as were, we all were, you know. And obviously this couldn't be talked to anyone really outside, you know, very close friends about this. Uh, but, you know... That was my dad, you know. I mean, despite these things, despite being sort of, you know, he was, there was, he was not, he was not for stopping. And he would, you know, I mean, as he said himself, if 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 I can achieve by talking to people what thousands of soldiers and thousands of police policemen on the streets have have failed to do, then it's my duty to do so. Yeah. You know? Did did he ever speak about the, the, those the meeting with the army council? I mean, he, he obviously was trying to articulate. That if, if they did come in out of the cold, there was a peaceful. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that was his view all the way along. Yeah. I mean, that was his view that, you know, there, there's, if you come in out of the cold, if you, you know, that, that this is the only way forward, that you're never going to create what you ultimately want by putting a gun to someone's head, you know, mm. that you cannot force, you know, a United Ireland. It's just not doable. Um, and that there has to be a way forward. And eventually they saw, you know, that he was right, I think. Yeah, and, but I think he convinced know. probably Adams from that period yeah. because the road was that then that 
um, Jerry Adams started trying to communicate through the Mm. Through, through the army to, to, and then Mark McGuinness who knew your dad well anyway of course yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just when we come through to the to the ceasefire I suppose it all really changed in he went through that 91-93 period where you know the, the doubters and the naysayers were, were down on him and uh, you, you, you described that um, with, with the talk of the first ceasefire it, it must have been a huge you know sense of achievement for him Oh, without a doubt, it was, it was, you know, he had climbed the mountain, you know, he, uh, and sort of the big black cloud had lifted, whatever, you know, I mean, it was, it, it was, he, he had achieved it. And it was the, I remember there was, there was a huge sense of euphoria, you know, everywhere. In the everywhere, voices, everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And, and on the entire island and, and further afield, it was just, it was just incredible looking back. Um, and, you know, he was, he was delighted and, uh, but around about that time also his health started to yeah. sort of, um, to, to play up with him and sort of, you know, he, uh, you know, it, 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 it sort of, um, life for health reasons became, became, became a lot more difficult. Um, he was hospitalized quite a, quite a bit in the period 94 to 98. Um, and he just wasn't himself again. I think the sort of, the, the, the hard years were starting to take their toll, you know, but he, he was, he was, Delighted, he was my my mother. I remember so well the the day of the ceasefire, and you know it was the happiness and the hope, and the, everyone was sort of you know it was a new dawn. Yeah, and I know he was very um he he was he was furious. Uh, I suppose is the word to use. I remember when the Washington Tree, it was Patrick May who signed up to this. Uh, when we wanted to get the um, the talk started with which in vain into the talks process and the loyalists into the talks process, he was furious when they started bringing up these obstacles uh, about the word permanent and <laughs> um, he, and and your father was a a, a man of of understanding what words meant more than most he, mm. he, he he was academic in his in, in his in his own in his own way and in his earlier life but he was furious about those those delays which ultimately brought down the ceasefire which was nothing to do with yeah. anything other than yeah. that yeah yeah i think he he viewed that as just you know the whole permanent sort of you know uh, and decommissioning discussion to be or debate to be one of no it was it was just time wasting and really was not you know i mean obviously there were genuine concerns there uh, but ultimately uh, this was just a, an exercise in wasting time and you know i, I think that's been proven to be the case yes. sort of in hindsight you know no doubt, no doubt about that i just want to move to the the period where, where we're, we're covering in the in the in the good friday agreement probably from the political position but i think where your father played a, a, a huge huge role as he did all the way from 68 but we come to the second ceasefire, summer '97. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be elected. Tisha Blair was in a few months before me, uh, and then there was the we, we we got my job was to get Sinn Fein on side, and Blair's job was to get Unionists on side, and um, it was the risk about getting the uh, the the talks process going. Uh, and I, I, I recall your, your, your dad advised me, as he had done from the time I was young, because he used to call into my office back in the early 80s when I was government whip. Mm. He'd always appear down and he'd come to whip's office with always somebody there. But he, he said that um, if we didn't move quickly uh, to get Sinn Féin into the talks, it would all it would all collapse again. And we took the risk, even though the, the ceasefire was permanent as it was going to be and there was still some acts of violence but not much that he said we had to get the talks going so in september 97 we got the talks going but i i recall at that stage he, he was very worried because the dup walked bob mccartney walked trimble they thought was going to walk, didn't walk. But I think your, your, your father was instrumental in trying to keep everybody in the talks at that stage, which was, a, um, he, he almost had to hold a hand out to the unionist side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what Dad believed at the time that there was a, given the personalities involved, you know, leaving aside the, the DUP and Bob McCartney and the like, but given the personalities involved, it presented an opportunity um, to reach an agreement, you know. Um, 
you know, you were the, the Taoiseach at the time and your commitment and your hard work is, you know, was, was, was second to none. Tony Blair, I think, was the first Prime Minister in a long time that actually saw this as a priority. Uh, we had Mo Molum as Secretary of State, who Dad had a very close relationship with, and, you know, they worked very, very well together. And you had David Trimble, who, who saw the opportunity. And I think, you know, it was that meeting of great minds that sort of really allowed this to happen. And, um, you know, I mean, Dad, yeah, he was the, he was there in the middle, cajoling, trying to keep people on track, keep keep people at the table. And it was a tough negotiation, as you, you'll remember. The people of Ireland are divided, unfortunately. That's the problem. Now you face up to the problem, or you can wander around having theological arguments about everything else. The problem is that we are a divided people, and the answer is to get agreement. People may recognise through my accent that I'm not Northern, I'm actually a dub. Alongside John Hume and the negotiating team at the talks were Seamus Mallon and Mark Durkin and this man, Sean Farron. I went north um, in 1970, just as the troubles were breaking out. I went north uh, to take up a what was a temporary uh, lectureship at the new University of Ulster. Um, after a year, the lectureship became permanent and I've remained there um, ever since. And uh, I joined the SDLP because people like John Hume, Austin Curry, Jerry Fitt, Paddy Devlin, uh, and so on, they were communicating in a way which both to my wife and myself as we listened to them, very effectively a message about how to resolve the problems through partnership, through cooperation, through institutions that uh, all sides of the community would be represented in. Right from uh, the very early days, um, I suppose, beginning with the, the Sunningdale Agreement. And I, and I think it's very important that we remember what the Sunningdale Agreement actually achieved, even though it only lasted um, in terms of being realised uh, for a very short period of time. But it promoted the idea of a partnership between unionists and nationalists. It promoted the idea of North-South Ministerial Council, the Council of Ireland. Uh, and it set about a, in a very determined way to try and bring a, a new dawn into northern politics. Sadly, um, regrettably, um, it didn't succeed. Uh, and uh, the success led to a period which we could, I suppose, refer to as the dark years um, in Northern Ireland, when violence dominated the violence of the IRA, the violence of the loyalist paramilitary groups, the UVF and UDA. And there seemed to be no hope around that uh, the situation could be rescued from that. There were several minor efforts by various secretary of states and others uh, to initiate a, a, a process of discussion between the parties, but they came to nothing. Uh, and that situation dragged on throughout the late 1970s, the 1980s, uh, and I suppose um, the 80s saw the, a very brave step uh, taken also by John Hume and leaders of the party, uh, Austin Curry and Seamus Mallon, and I was part of that delegation that met with Sinn Féin for, for the first time and uh, tried to impress on them the futility of of their of the IRA's violence because of course Sinn Féin and the IRA were very closely um, wedded uh, and we we tried to convince them in 1988 in those talks that um, there were other possibilities around. It took some time um, and the violence continued uh, and at, at at last in 1994 the ceasefires were declared and the serious negotiations were able to start, which eventually led uh, to uh, the Good Friday Agreement. So we need to appreciate, I suppose, the backdrop to the Good Friday Agreement 
Um, I suppose that period from 88 all the way up to 94 uh, and through the talks to 91, 92 talks, uh, there was the hope that we'd get somewhere. And it seemed for a long time we, we wouldn't make any progress. But what was the sense within the SDLP and, and generally on the public when when the first ceasefires happened? Well, I, I suppose people uh, breathed a, a sigh of relief. Um, after all, the violence had not achieved anything. If I mean, <laughs> if anything, it moved things backwards. And uh, when the ceasefires came, people were, uh, as I say, breathing a sigh of relief that at last a, some kind of positive steps might well follow. Um, and we all, in a sense, basked in the, in the euphoria um, that the ending of the violence uh, produced. But we were disappointed, I suppose, that the talks that we had expected were so slow uh, to develop. And the whole question about um, decommissioning started to become a political football. Was uh, it permanent and was it? Was it yeah. permanent? Uh, was it a permanent uh, ceasefire? Would decommissioning happen? Because unionists were saying there'll be no negotiations as long as there's no decommissioning. Mm. And we had to get through that. And that was a tortuous period because it took from 94 on, until 96 uh, before anything like serious negotiations um, could take place. And even then, for the first year of the negotiations, um, Sinn Féin were not party uh, to those negotiations. And it wasn't until uh, the, uh, the following year, 1997, that uh, we saw an indication that violence was over, that it, while decommissioning wasn't going to happen, Parties signed up to the Mitchell principles, which required parties to support a democratic approach to the problems and uh, made sure that uh, the talks could take place if they were going to include Sinn Féin, that they would take place in a non-violent context where the violence was over and people could feel that an agreement could be reached uh, where the violence would be in the past. So that was the nationalist perspective. Then there was my own government, which was newly formed at the time the talk started. The Progressive Democrats have promised to increase contributory state pensions to £100 a week over five years if the party gets into power. The PD leader, Mary Harney, also said she would penalise unemployed people who refuse what she described as reasonable offers of work or places on training programmes. My main coalition partners were the Progressive Democrats, led by Mary Harney, and one of the key figures in her party was Liz O'Donnell. Originally, I had been appointed as Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs with responsibility for overseas development and human rights. So this was an added uh, remit that my party leader had given to me. Uh, in, in her usual way, she had, she'd, she'd contacted me on the phone one day and said, in the, in the context of other party matters, she was talking to me and she says, and by the way, you're doing the North. Typical Mary Harney sort of, you know, throwaway remark almost that you're doing the North. So I nearly died. So that put the, the frighteners on me and I did all my homework right through the summer in Donegal reading all the documents when we came into government. Uh, in the summer of July 1997, you know, the peace process was in a moribund state because the Canary Wharf bomb had blown the whole thing, uh, stopped the negotiations. Uh, and, you know, there was kind of despair. But the new government coming in, two fresh governments coming in, uh, with yourself uh, as Taoiseach and Tony Blair as Prime Minister, uh, there was a sense of optimism that for the first time, um, with a huge majority, Tony Blair had the opportunity, uh, you know, to start afresh and to inject some, you know, uh, dynamic enthusiasm into the process. But of course, we'd no ceasefire. So uh, under the rules, there had to be a ceasefire before any meaningful discussions took place. So. That summer, uh, I spent the summer um, just beefing up on all the documents because the one thing that is frequently forgotten, I think, is that a lot of work had been done by previous governments on, you know, by the Reynolds government, Bruton government, 
uh, in kind of putting together the documents, you know, the, the framework document and the joint declaration in 1993 had really set the parameters of a possible settlement. So I went off to Donegal on my holidays to do my ecker and read up all those documents because we had, uh, there was a ceasefire on the 20th of July. I remember it because it was my birthday and uh, that meant that we were back in business potentially to start the negotiations in September. So before September came, I had familiarised myself with all of the documents. So then when we kicked off in September, there was a decontamination period where uh, Sinn Féin had to, you know, stay on ceasefire uh, until the talks began. So I think there was an air of optimism that Mo Molum and Tony Blair were injecting. They were naturally reforming politicians as well. So um, and they had a good relationship with us uh, from the very beginning. And I think that's was central to the success of of um, the whole process from 1997 September to the Good Friday Agreement is that the two governments were really added. Um, we had the same the same objective. Um, we were helping each other to overcome obstacles. Um, and that that was crucial to the success because there were rocky periods where there were breaches of the ceasefire, you know, where we had to suspend our critical faculties about the bona fides, for example, of loyalists or Sinn Féin, uh, about, you know, arms and murders happening. Um, so that solidarity between the two governments um, and the use of our best teams in your own Taoiseach's office uh, the best people were being deployed and in foreign affairs our best people our best diplomats were being deployed similarly in um, Tony Blair's office the best of civil servants were, were being deployed to this it was the singular most important policy objective of the two governments so I think that that's what gave us the sort of confidence to move forward progressively On the next episode of As I Remember It the Unionists that did participate in the talks and what brought them to the table. At some point, it had to stop. At some point, the violence had to stop and there had to be something to replace it. Loyalism is not Neanderthals. They're not knuckle-dragging thugs. They're people with genuine concerns and worries about the future. Well, we had to proceed and find a way forward. It was just as simple as that. We had to find a way forward. And why the Women's Coalition always brought a smile to Tony Blair's face. We basically sort of said, well, look, now's an opportunity to try and broaden politics because one of the things I think we found was violence narrows politics. Everything was so focused on the constitutional question and there were huge economic and social and rights issues that had just gone by the board, basically. All the parties to the problem had to become parties to the solution and they were now seated at the same table. As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. The producers, Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing, Lachlan Hart. Archive audio used in this episode was from RTE, BBC and ITN. Go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material, including full interviews, videos, a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement.